This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 97, Training. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 promises that God's word will make us adequate in all spiritual things, including training in righteousness. So we have the equipment. How to go about using it, that's another matter. Today, to help us understand what it means to train and be trained in the things of God, I'm joined by Stephen Russell, evangelist for the Pepper Road Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama, and Eric Russell, their relation, who preaches for the Spring Warrior Church of Christ in Perry, Florida. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I've been preaching about discipline. It's a broad subject. For athletes, it's about choosing exercise over indulgence. For parents, it's about teaching lessons to your children, oftentimes the hard way. For dieters, it's about saying yes to celery and no to donuts. In any case, it hurts. And when God is the coach, parent, or nutritionist, it can be downright excruciating. What makes Christians want to quit? And how can we learn to push through the pain? Gentlemen, the floor is yours. I think one of the uh, biggest problems we face is, is that to be a Christian, we have to denounce our own selfish desires and do the things of Christ. And, and, and that's, that's difficult. You know, I kind of think about what Paul says in Romans chapter seven, beginning in verse 14, when he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And down in verse uh, 21 of that passage. So I find it to be law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. We want to do that which is pleasing to ourselves. And oftentimes that goes completely against what God's word says. And it makes us want to just bow down quick because we want to serve those selfish desires. I think a lot of it has to do with being able to visualize and being confident about the result. Uh, a lot of times in, in the illustrations that you used um, with sports, with dieting, failure comes when people begin to not think that what they're doing is worth it that they're not going to get the result that they want. And it's one of the reasons why in dieting programs, one of the most effective ways to sell those things is to show an image of what happens if you will faithfully follow these guidelines. And so that's why you see so many before and afters is because that's effective marketing and it makes people believe this can be done. And, and in fact, it's, I don't think it's false marketing because most diets, if you follow them faithfully, you will get that result. The, the problem is most people don't follow it faithfully. And I think th the same thing is true with God's word. We can develop confidence in the, the result, the end result of following God's word faithfully, those results here and those results ultimately. But so very often what happens is the same thing as in all of these other areas, people give a half-hearted, occasional effort, and then they're very frustrated that they're not getting the results, the promised results. They don't see uh, a growing peace. They don't, they don't see the, the anxiety going away. They're not, they're not growing in, in all of the characteristics that God's word says that they would grow in. And it's like the person who shows up to the gym one time a week for 15 minutes uh, and picks up a couple of weights and leaves, who is frustrated that, that his numbers aren't increasing. Well, of course they're not. The demands are significant. 
and just as you pointed out uh, in the, you know, in your question, the, the choices are stark, celery and donuts. Well, there's no question. Any of us at any point have given those two options, unless we have some overriding and separate motivation, we'll always, always, always choose the donut. Nobody says, oh, celery is so much more delicious. Now, there are people that will lie to you and say, eventually you'll find that that's tastier. I just, I don't believe it. I've been on diets for over a year and been very successful with them. And still, I would never say that the celery got to taste better in that moment, at least. Now, maybe, maybe from the standpoint of because I could see what it pr would produce, but in and of itself, no, no, the donut will always taste better. I think of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You got to thoroughly believe that, that if I keep on this path, that God is going to do what he said. You have to have the confidence of the apostle Paul and second Timothy. I know what's laid up for me. And ultimately that's where the Hebrew writer goes after he gives us all of these human examples, he points to the only perfect human in Christ in chapter 12 and verse two, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did he deal with, how did he choose cross over comfort, over avoidance of the cross, the joy set before him? Christ was able to, in very real terms, visualize what was on the other side of the cross. And we need to maybe be more thorough in visualizing that. Um, I think sometimes we, we speak of heaven in nebulous terms rather than what concrete terms God's word gives us to really think through what will that be and what will make that worthwhile. And the fact of the matter is that if we can visualize that, the more we can visualize that, well, we have greater motivation for that then than all of these other pursuits that we might have. If you don't believe in the coach, you're not going to do what the coach tells you to do when it becomes inconvenient or painful to do that. And God asks seemingly ridiculous things out of us, crazy things, things that we would never do for ourselves, just like a coach would. The whole point of having a coach is the assumption that I don't know what I'm doing, that I, somebody else knows better than I do. And when I read verse 4, in struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Verse four of, of chapter 12. I don't see that as a persecution kind of thing. I see that as an effort kind of thing. And I may be wrong on that, but I have taken to reading that as part of this training regimen that he is putting his people through in this section, which may include persecution. Or well, will include persecution sometimes, but God talking to his people saying, you're going through a tough time and you think you're giving everything that you've got and you are not. It gets worse than this and you have to be prepared for that. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to shed blood like, like you're a boxer or a, or a gymnast or a jockey, any number of physical pursuits that eventually get so painful that you just can't see your way through to the finish line and just got to pick up and go again. And when you get broken by the regimen, because that happens sometimes, you give yourself to it that much more. You have to rehabilitate. You can't quit. Well, it hurts too much to rehabilitate. It's going to hurt. You know, and, and you're going to think from time to time it's not worth it. 
but that's what God's training is. He's, he's pushing us through this. I fear that we have convinced ourselves that we can have everything God offers on our terms and life in the real world ought to tell us that's not the way it works. It never works that way. And my family owns a semi-trailer repair business in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's what I did growing up and my, my father still owns it. And you think about from a, a standpoint of leadership, a good coach, a good leader will never ask you to do something that they wouldn't go through themselves. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, and he went through so much suffering. And so what he's asking us to do is, is things that he would himself do. Yeah, I would add to that, that he, he knows what we're capable of more than we do. A lot of times that happens with coaching is you, you ask something of an athlete and he says, I can't, I can't do that. And you have to convince him that he can. I've, I've experienced this with my own daughters when we've run together. You know, we get to a point, I can't go any further. And I say, all right, we're just going to run to that mailbox up there then. And then once we do, what I have to do is remind her that two blocks ago, you said you couldn't go any further. And then help her realize she just did go further than she said she could. And what I'm doing is trying to coach her to trust me that I will not push her past what she is capable of, that I care about her. And I obviously don't want her to get hurt, but I also also want her to push past the limitations of her own expectations of herself because she set them too low. And I have greater expectations of her than she has of herself. And I want her to raise her expectations. And so all along the way, I say, we get to that mailbox and I say, okay, we did that, but we're just going to run to another mailbox. And I just keep doing that and just extend that just a little bit more. And then when we get to the end of it, I ask her, are you surprised at how much farther you were able to run than you thought you could run? And I think that's so much our relationship with God is that very often we get to a point we say, this is it. I cannot do more than this. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where if it weren't for the comfort and the strength that God provide, he said, we got to the point where we thought this is it. This is death. Mm -hmm. But then we kept going. And I think that when God's servants have come to him throughout history in Jeremiah chapter 12, when Jeremiah comes and says, I cannot do anymore. And God, like a very hard coach, comes and says, you think this is hard? Um, yeah. <laughs> we're still in the peace time. We're, we're in the pleasant meadow. We haven't gotten to the thicket. We're, you're just walking along. You're, you're walking with the footmen. What are you going to do when the horses show up and I ask you to keep up with them? Right. I think we need some of those reality checks. I think in our culture, it has become cliche and maybe even almost a parody to say that our culture is soft. But the fact is, our culture is very soft. And so we excuse ourselves all too soon to not go on and to not continue. One of the helps, I think, of Hebrews chapter 11, in addition to looking forward to the goal, he points backwards to these examples so that when we say, I just can't go anymore, then the Hebrew writer says, wait a minute, let me show you how far people have gone. You haven't even started to get to the difficult parts yet. And I think we need to hear that a lot these days. I think going along with what you said about, you know, being soft, I, I go back and you read the things that Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 11 about the things he went through for the cause of Christ. And, and we think about we bow down, we give up because of something small. 
look what Paul went through. Five times he received the four lashes, less one, shipwrecked, stoned, everything he went through. But then Paul was still able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And so I think kind of what we're seeing in this is how do we get to that level? How do we get to that point of dedication to where even when we go through these challenging times and these difficulties, even when, when things don't seem to be going our way and we want to quit, how can we fight through to the very end? Whenever I preach about the thorn in the flesh, it's this horrible, horrible thing. You know, it's this excruciating thing because the thorn can be really, really horrible. And Paul is begging to have this thing removed. Well, think about what Paul's been through. Like you were saying before, I have put up with shipwreck. I have put up with stoning. I have put up all these kind of things. I'm just asking for this thorn to be taken away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. I can get you through this. You have to learn how to trust in me and you'll be able to do it. And eventually, if you trust the guide, the coach, the teacher sufficiently, you get to the point where you realize it was better for me to keep that thorn and push through this. I didn't need relief. I needed grace. I needed patience. I needed the things that my master was trying to teach me in that moment. Because there's always going to be a situation that comes up where you think the only thing I need right now is 15 minutes of rest. The only thing I need is a day off. The only thing I need is a good hamburger or something like that. And that's exactly what you don't get. Does God know what he's doing or not? The Job story, you know, classic example. I don't understand. You don't need to understand. You need to trust in me. This is going to work out at the end. And the easier you make it on yourself, the quicker we're going to get to where we're trying to go. This is what I've been reading. I've been reading Paul's letter to Titus. Paul clearly took the mentor-protege relationship seriously, and not just for his own students. He encourages Titus to build relationships between older saints and younger ones, passing skills and experiences along through the generations. Far too often, though, the younger ones think they have all the answers already, and the older ones just don't want to be bothered. What are some practical approaches we can take to make sure all parties both give and receive what is helpful? I've had several mentors that I am greatly indebted to. Each mentor has brought something else to the table. I do think that one of the main barriers is on the side of youth. Either it's thinking that they know too much or, and maybe this goes along with that, not thinking that older generation provides any value. We're in a cultural moment that's not unique, but certainly seems to have reached a crescendo with regards to thinking that the older generation knows nothing that they're completely devoid of wisdom and that we've got to scrap everything and start all over. Now that's, that's not new to the moment. Uh, it's just very loud at this moment. And so I think one thing we can do is cultivate that regard and that respect. Part of that means teaching our children to be able to sit and listen to older people talk. I grew up with that. I grew up where my granddad preached we went to their house almost every Sunday afternoon when there was a gospel meeting uh, and a preacher was visiting. We always went to my grandparents' house. And I, I grew up listening to Granville Tyler just talk, to H.E. Phillips just talk with my granddad. And, and I would just sit there and it was fascinating. And I didn't always understand what they were talking about, but I did most of the time. 
And of course, there was a lot of humor. All of my, my grandfather's old preaching friends were men who had great personalities in addition to their great biblical knowledge. And so that goes a long way to be sure. But it cultivated in me a desire to sit and listen to that generation talk. I've tried to cultivate that in my own children. We took every opportunity to have the preacher in our home when we were having a gospel meeting. And while other people thought that that was a burden, I only saw it as a great opportunity. Bob Waldron uh, has spent time in our home and come up to my girls. I remember he was working on one of his commentaries and he came up to my daughters. They were four and six years old. And he says, could I tell you a story about a Hebrew word that uh, something I just discovered about this? And because of the way Brother Waldron talks, they absolutely, you know, were just, yes, talk to us about anything. And he sat them on his knees and told them a story about this Hebrew word. And he always was talking to them in that way. And I know, and of course, maybe that's, that's where we're coming from on that side, is that there needs to be a more softness and a willingness to sit down and, and in some ways get on the level of the generation that we're talking to. But there must be that openness on the other side. No matter how much you are a good communicator, if you do not have someone who wants to listen to that communication, then it will not be there. One of the things that we've done over the years is gone to storytelling festivals. You sit down and what you find is that the average age is probably 70 plus. And as I took my daughters from the time that they were two and three years old, they're the only children there on occasion. And people would stare and comment afterwards. I can't believe children that age would sit and listen to someone talk without a device in their hand for that long. I'm not trying to take pride in that. I'm just saying that's something that we purposefully cultivated. And I think culture is doing the very opposite of cultivating that. And so if we're going to cultivate that, we're going to have to be very purposeful. We're going to have to turn off the television. We're going to have to turn off the devices. We're going to have to have moments where we are seriously making that a priority to develop those relationships between parents and children, between children and grandparents, it's another thing. My children have very close relationship with their grandparents, with their great-grandparents. And so I think those sorts of things in the home need to be happening more. I think the assumption, we sort of surrendered and just said, you know, kids and adults are going to be at odds with each other. And let's just, it's, it's just is. Well, it doesn't have to be. I think you're right, too. I think a lot of times in the world today, especially in the world of technology we live in, some young people think, well, the older generation just doesn't know what we're going through. They don't understand the temptations we face because of technology. But I try to remind my children as well as, as well as other children here at the uh, congregation here where I preach at that. Remember all sin comes back to one of three categories. All sin comes back to lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so the things that you're facing now as a, a preteen, a teenager, are the same things that I faced, the same things your parents faced, the same things your grandparents faced. It's the same temptation. It just took a different avenue of how it got there. Sometimes we think, well, our parents just don't understand what they're going through. Our grandparents just don't understand. We do understand because we went through it. We, we suffered through those things. And so when our parents are trying to instruct us and trying to teach us, there's a lot of wisdom behind those things. There's a lot of wisdom that they're sharing. And I, for one, when I was little, was kind of like that. Well, my parents just don't understand. Well, now that I'm older and I'm a parent myself, I look back and say, 
my parents did understand. They knew what I was struggling with if I would just been smart enough to sit and listen to what they're saying. We need older preachers who are willing to sit down with younger preachers and to teach them and to talk to them, to show them wisdom, to have patience with them. But at the same time, we also need the younger generation. We need young men from a preaching standpoint who desire that work, who desire to stand in pulpits, to preach the gospel. And there's a sense of humility that has to be there to sit and to listen to those older generation, as Stephen was talking about, to listen to the wisdom that they've gained over the years and pass that on. I'm thankful I had a man like that. As, as Stephen said, he had many mentors. I did as well. I spent a year with Jared Jacobs up in Caneyville, Kentucky. I was green. I, I was greener than green behind the ears when I started, but thankful for him to have the patience to, to go through things and, and to instill wisdom and knowledge into my life that I could take with me to preach the gospel. In my 30s, I began to look for more instruction. And uh, it's, it's when I started studying more frequently with Brother Waldron and uh, Brother Tom Holly. And then I began to hear about opportunities where they were having training camps, for lack of a better term. But for, for guys my age, I, I knew about those for teenage boys, but I didn't know about that for men. I heard of one up in Illinois that Ken McDaniel was hosting. And so I went up there and I was astonished at the end of the week, not just of the knowledge that I gained during the studies, but also the, the strength and encouragement from the other brethren that were there, as well as the, just being around them was tremendous. You know, I came home and I talked to my wife and I said, I, I want there to be something like this closer to where we live, not just for me, but for other guys who live in this area who can't drive all the way to Illinois. And, uh, and so in the fall of each year, I started hosting Profitable for Teaching in the second week of October each year. My rule of thumb is that I try to get teachers who either have no hair or gray hair. And I don't always follow that rule, but generally I follow that rule. And when people come, I have a speech that I make at the beginning of every year. And that is that the students have come to listen and the teachers have come to teach. And one of the things that I think that we really press a lot is the notion that everybody contributes. I want there to be an understanding that the teachers have come to contribute what they've come to contribute, which is the instruction. And the students have come to contribute what they contribute, which is the listening. We get those mixed up and classes are not as effective. The men who are most prepared and most ready to say what they're ready to say get thrown off. And that's what happens in mentor-mentee relationships is if the one who's supposed to be learning comes in and thinks that he's there to instruct, it does not work well. You know, listening is not entirely passive. Listening is a choice that you're making. And, and frankly, it's a choice a lot of people are not making. Your average 14-year-old, 16-year-old sitting in a pew, listening to some guy, his dad's age or his granddad's age, trying to explain to him how the world works. There is a built-in resistance, even resentment, perhaps. This is the guy who's in my way. I'll be running the world as soon as this guy's generation is out of the way. And I'm not sure how conscious that is. I would like to think that Christians, uh, young people in Christian families are better than the average with regard to that. Sometimes I'm not so sure. But when we can instill in these young people the importance of what they are doing, 
you're not a passive bystander. Not suggesting they shouldn't be active either. There are things that they can do actively, publicly in the service of the Lord. But you being there and learning things and growing your faith is a terribly important thing. And the quicker we can get them to understand the importance of those baby steps, the more likely they're going to take those baby steps willingly and eagerly and maybe find themselves you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, where they can take bigger steps and more important steps. I think you're right. And, and I think we, we realize not everyone's going to be a preacher. And so how do we apply this to all aspects, to, to, to everyone in the congregation? And going back to the original question, you know, going back to reading Titus in Titus chapter two, you know, the older men are to teach the younger men, the older women teach the younger women. I think what we need to remember, unless we're the oldest one in the congregation or the youngest one in the congregation, there are people who are older than us and younger than us. And so we always fall on both sides of this, that we need to be learning from those who are older and wiser than us and teaching those who are younger than us and instilling things into them. I could be wrong, but, but reading Titus chapter two, I think sometimes we read that and we think, well, that's someone else's job. That's someone else's job to, to, to instill that. Isn't this the qualities of a sound church things that need to be done by all of us? And if we have that mindset of pushing it off onto somebody else, are we not neglecting to follow what God's word is telling us that we need to be doing? Mm -hmm. It's important that we all realize this is a responsibility and a job of every single one in this congregation. We are all able to teach. We are all able to instruct the younger generation and help them grow in the knowledge and faith of the Lord. I love how the, the very first thing the older women are told to do for the younger women is to teach them to love their husbands, you know, and, and the younger women will chime up that that's the one thing I don't need to be taught. You know, I, I have that, I've got that down. And so many of these lessons that we think we know in our twenties and even in our thirties are in fact, untapped growth potential opportunities. There are things that the older generation can offer that we may easily dismiss because we're satisfied where we are, because we have very low expectations, uh, because we've been trained to ask for less and get less, whatever it happens to be. There is greatness that can be achieved in the Lord's church, not for our own glory, of course, but for the glory of the Lord, for the glory of the church, for the work. Uh, we can do better than we're doing. And people who have gone before, and I know the young people get tired of hearing this, made our mistakes, been where we are, gone through the same kind of struggles. Our internet connection might not have been as good as their internet connection, but we went through it and we've learned lessons and we can teach those lessons if given half a chance. When we put young people in a position to value that and value growing, even growing exponentially in those areas, that can just make all the difference in the world. When we get away from the specific instruction of Bible knowledge, um, which is obviously infinitely valuable, and we start talking about these more practical everyday aspects, which obviously applies biblical knowledge, but, but is, is more learned through application, through experience. When we start talking about that, I, th I think one of the frustrating things for a younger generation is to find an older generation not ready to communicate what they've learned. My wife and I, when we were expecting our first child, were very disappointed at how few people could really put together what they thought was helpful advice. 
even in marriage, what, what advice would you give married couples? And people had all sorts of humorous things, throw off things to say, but very little in the way of serious, helpful advice. And the same thing is true with child rearing. And I think that we need to get better at articulating the things that we lo- we've learned, or even just thinking about the things we've learned. Flying by the seat of your pants is not a, um, a purposeful way to go about improving things. And there are people who have gone through a generation where what they've learned about marriage is more about gritting your teeth and sticking with it, which has its value, but is not complete. And so they don't really have great marriages and they're not able to communicate because they themselves have not learned to be the example of Christ and the church Paul gives us to look to for marriage. And so I think that's part of it is an older generation really needs to evaluate and figure out what has worked and what has not worked. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard an older generation, uh, somebody from an older generation say, well, this worked fine for us. And you look in two things, first of all, maybe it didn't work as well as they think it did. And second of all, even if it did work, things worked out in spite of what you did. I mean, they don't realize that that particular thing was a failure and that, that maybe overall they did some good things, but this is not the good thing that you did, right? I mean, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, one time my kid got bleach in his eyes and he turned out all right. Yeah, well, that's, that doesn't mean putting bleach in your eyes is a good thing, you know? And so I think sometimes the older generation hasn't really evaluated their lives. They haven't taken stock and looked truly from a biblical standpoint of where did I go right and where did I go wrong so that they can effectively communicate the wisdom to another generation. And then secondly, along those lines, to be in a, in a generation and think in terms of I'm passing this wisdom on, not so that you can be just like me, but that you can get a head start and do better and be a better generation. The default is that each generation gets worse. What we're talking about, what we're hopeful of, is that we want the next generation to grow even more than we did. And what that's going to take is is a couple of things. First of all, what we already talked about, being able to effectively communicate what wisdom we've learned, but also a humility that says, we didn't get as far as we could. We got to this point. There's more growing to do. There's more knowledge. There's more ways to grow in these characteristics even. And so to be able to say, I want my children to be better parents than me. So that doesn't mean for me, I've been a terrible parent. I know my own mistakes and I want to help them to avoid the mistakes that I made. That's going to take an admission of those mistakes. Part of the wisdom I'm imparting, I hope, is don't go down this path. You're going to think that this right here is so important and it's not. And you're going to think this right here is not a big deal. And you'll look back and realize it was a big deal. Bob Waldron, in our studies, one of the things that would happen um, somewhat frequently is, is we would be astonished at something else that he had said. We'd say, wow, wow. I could, you know, mind blown. This is incredible what you've just uh, given us. And he would stop and he'd say, now, I've just given you something in 10 minutes that it took me 40 years to figure out. So you better do something with that. You don't have the excuse now of needing the 40 years to learn that. You've already got that now. What are you going to build on top of that? And so what he's expecting, you know, here in our minds, we're thinking, I just want to try to get to where Brother Waldron is. And what Brother Waldron's thinking is, I'm trying to get you started where I am and you better get farther than that. 
And so I think that's part of it too, is the expectation of the older generation, not to say we want to teach the, old, the younger generation to be just like us, man, no, please no, don't end up just like me. That would be lazy. I want you to, to take what I've learned, both good and bad and go farther, man, be more successful. And not just lazy, but arrogant, right? Yeah. It's who that's says right. I'm the end of the line. I yeah. think that's one of the, the problems that a lot of people in various walks of life have, trying to think that I have all the answers. And so if you can just get up to where I am, then you've arrived. And in any reasonable assessment of our life knows that's not true. You know, I think about how do we learn from one another? How do we instruct one another? And I think, you know, while we're at the building, while we're at services, yeah, we can watch that example and we can kind of see the way they act and behave and what they've learned and, and you know, listen to in Bible classes. But is that enough? And I don't think it is. And so I think the way that we go about doing this to teach that next generation is there's got to be time spent together. There's got to be time spent together outside the walls of the building to where we can cultivate those relationships and, and have that trust where we can talk about those things that are maybe even more difficult, maybe even more sensitive topics. Before I started preaching, we lived in Indiana where I grew up at and, and we were part of a Bible study and the person that led the study began this idea with let's have someone who's older and lived this sit in the Bible class so they could help instill some wisdom into us. It was a marriage class or a parenting class that we were in. And they brought someone who'd already raised children who had been married for many years to come in you know, to help instill wisdom. I just thought that was a fantastic idea. And so that's something that we've continued on here at Spring Warrior. This past year, we started a marriage class, although with COVID, we didn't get to have as many classes as we would like up to this point. But, but every class, we invite one elderly couple to come and sit in with us. And so as we talk about these things, they can share lifelong wisdom, as Stephen said, that they've gained and that's taken them 40, 50 years to learn so they could teach us now. And so we can improve upon our relationships, our own marriages, our own parenting skills. And like he said, be a better generation than what we had before. Cause that isn't that the goal to, to be a generation that's serving God more faithfully than the generation before us. This is what I've been playing. I've been playing legacy games. For those who don't know, a legacy game is one that evolves over time. Instead of just playing the game and putting it away, we watch the game evolve. Characters change, objectives change, the board itself often changes. It's not just entertainment for an hour, it's an immersive experience stretching out for days, weeks, or even months. Similarly, spiritual training is not just about achieving specific objectives. It always looks forward. We're always traveling and never arriving, at least not until God calls us home. What can we do both for ourselves and for our brethren to stave off complacency and continually strive for improvement? It's kind of a two-sided aspect. And one is to emphasize that the principles stay the same. You talk about legacy games. We've played some of those ourselves. The circumstances do change. The rules don't we're still playing the same game and we're still playing by these rules. Now we have to apply those rules in some very creative ways as the game goes along in order to try to get to the objective, but you don't, you don't just start making up the rules as you go. And in fact, the more things change, the more it becomes very important to remember what the rules are. You get where you want a certain outcome and you'll be tempted to break those rules and just say, 
let's just do it this way. I think we've had a whole year of that where people have gotten very creative with the rules and maybe too creative in some instances as we've tried to deal with difficulties. Some people have almost scoffed at the need to go back and say, now let's refresh our minds. What are the core aspects of what we're supposed to be doing? What are the rules here that we're playing by? And whatever happens, let's not forget what those are. Almost on the flip side of that, and especially as preachers, I think we have a responsibility to do this, is to constantly be trying to help people connect those very old principles to what's going on in this moment. That's so much of what the epistles are, is is Paul saying, here's the principle, here's what's going on right there, and here's how those two connect. That can be a real danger if we sort of fall into the preaching always to the moment and failing to sort of preach what's actually in the text. But if we're never making a connection to the moment, then all we're doing is studying history disconnected from reality. And that's no good either. So it's got to be both, that we've got to constantly be going back and making sure the foundation is laid, but then also understanding how that connects to our, to our moment that we're living in, the changing dynamics that we're living in, and how do we stick by this, but also apply it to the moment. Going back to the, the last question we looked at, you know, with the younger generation, sometimes having that feeling, well, I know it all. I don't need the help. I think about Second Peter chapter one, you know, uh, beginning in verse five, this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue, with knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control with steadfast, steadfast with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. If I'm always going to be increasing in these things, that means I've got to have the humility to say I never have a perfect knowledge of these things. I've never got a perfect sense of virtue. I've never got a perfect sense of self-control. I'm not complete in these things. And so therefore, that tells me there's always room to grow. There's always room to do better than what I've done in the past. And so I look at the history, kind of what Steve was talking about, and the things that are going on today, and how do we apply them? Well, I could apply them the way I want to from a selfish standpoint and be with the world, or I could go back and see how God handled people in the past and see the events that took place and the way God responded and say, I need to learn to respond like that. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I need to look at those examples. How did Paul handle those difficult situations he was in? Did he bow down to the world around him and just give in or did he take a stand? There's growth that still has to take place. I'm never going to get to that perfect level that I think I'm already at. Well, when do I know that I arrive? I know when I manage to not cheat on my wife. I know when I manage to not murder somebody. That's easy. But how do I know when I've loved my neighbor as myself? Well, you don't know. And you're probably never going to know. What you do is you push forward. You train yourself. And by the way, that's not necessarily as new a concept as we would like to think because love your neighbor as yourself is in the Old Testament too. And I'm confident that Adam and Eve were supposed to love their neighbor too. That's not a new thing, but we see it better in the Christian era, I think. And we appreciate more. It's not simply a matter of being better than the publican. It's not being better than the Samaritan. It's about being the best that we can be in Jesus and balancing this sense of striving forward, which we need, with this staving off of frustration and depression when we don't measure up. 
can we maintain this motivation? Can we keep trying to do better, not quit on ourselves, not quit on God, but expect more out of ourselves and feel good about ourselves during this, during this process? I think another thing about that is understanding our limitations and that we are going to have to make the best decisions in the moment, not the best decisions as evaluated three months from now. That's one of the critical things I think about this past year. People have spent a lot of time looking back and wondering about the decision they made three months ago. We didn't have the information we have now three months ago. Three months later, you have even more information. Going back in hindsight and, and trying to reevaluate or, or always trying to make the perfect decision. We don't have perfect knowledge. What we can make is the best decision based on the knowledge and the resources we have. And, and people have spent a lot of time saying things like, well, if only we had this or if only this were true. Then, well, it's not. So based on what is true or at least what we know is true, then how do we move forward at this moment? Going back to your illustration of the games, how much time do you spend in that kind of game going, if we only had this, then we would do this right now. I mean, I don't know how many times we've said that around our own kitchen table as we're playing through some of those things. And of course, those are fruitless conversations really because that's not available. We really have to kind of clamp down to some degree and understand that we live in this moment. God has all the answers because God lives above every moment. He can see what's coming. He can perfectly see what has been. And so he can make perfect decisions. When you were talking about, I have I arrived, right? Have I gotten to, to perfection and so forth? The answer will always be no. And part of that is because of our limitation of information. We are finite in the number of decisions we can make, the number of actions we can take. We're finite in the information we can gather on which we base those decisions. So there's so many things like that. But God hasn't expected us to make perfect decisions with perfect knowledge. What he said is, here are the foundations on which I want you to base those decisions. And sometimes we may make a decision on good foundations and it be a righteous decision. And yet later we find out that if we had had more information, we didn't. But if we had, we would have made a different decision. That doesn't mean that decision was wrong. And I think that's part of it, is kind of coming to grips with that and just saying, we've got to make the best decision right now that we can make. And I think to go along with that, that decision we make, we have to make sure that that decision, it's not based on our own selfish desires and wills, but based on the knowledge of God. And I think to help us through those times, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, when there was a big decision to be made, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, a lot of time contemplating my options, but not enough time in prayer, not enough time praying to God, seeking his counsel. You know, it's not a time in his word to help me through those difficult situations. And I think that that's where our knowledge, as Steve was saying, that's where our knowledge comes from. That's where that foundation comes from. It's not what I think or my feelings. It's what God expect of me. If our goal is to seek God's things, if our goal is to be what God wants us to be, then we're going to always be pushing ourselves. Hopefully our children are in that kind of situation, especially when they're younger, right? They look to mom and dad and making dad happy is the best thing in the world. And, and if you could just do something that would make him happy, bring him this little piece of paper you scribbled on. Look, I made you a picture. And dad smiles at us and gives us a hug. 
that's as good as it gets. And the same thing goes on with my dealings with my father now. If I can do something that that lightens his load, that makes him proud of me, I want to do that. Why wouldn't I want to do that? That speaks directly to my relationship with him. It's not like I've got to 80% pleasing and that's good enough for me. And that's better than a lot of my neighbors. I want to do better than that. And I would like to think that I have the relationship with God that would call me to that kind of compliance as well. I think another thing too, thinking about this idea of complacency, a lot of times for me, it comes from getting in a rut, doing the same thing day in and day out. You know, I know, you know, reading my Bible daily, it's a discipline that needs to take place and that needs to be part of my daily life. But, you know, if I get to this rut of just sitting down, making sure I read so many chapters a day, I can become complacent. I don't really allow that, that word to, to absorb in my heart, to take it in what's being said and to apply it to my life. And so I think sometimes this complacency means we, we need to get out of the rut. You know, maybe that means in worship services, we need to not change worship. As I think you understand what I'm saying, not, not take away from what God says, but maybe it's just as simple as changing the order of worship services. It just gets to focus more on an aspect that maybe we've not been focusing on well enough, or, or maybe for our Bible reading, it's, it's, we change our reading plan or we change, you know, maybe the tools that we have to help us in that reading plan. You know, there's that old cliche, you know, when, when you're dieting or you're, you're, you know, working out that you have an accountability partner, someone's going to hold me accountable to lose the weight. It seems silly, but doesn't that help us with our spiritual walk as well? Someone who I can look to and say, hey, I'm really struggling. And they can be honest with us and straightforward with us and help push us out of that rut to help us grow as Christians. Isn't that why we have our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in this journey along the way? You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.